Have you seen these yet? What are they? Yeah, have a look at them. Here's what started the whole thing. Well. When we first found it, we thought it might be an outcrop of magnetic rock. But all the geological evidence was against it. And not even a big nickel iron meteorite could produce a field as intense as this. So we decided to have a look. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. And what's more, the evidence seems pretty conclusive that it hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Deliberately buried. <laughs> well, how about a little coffee? Oh, great. Good idea. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please help. Today's episode, The Monolith. Woo! We've been waiting for this one. This thing is as elemental as it gets and as iconic as it gets and went through many different designs before it was refined into this deceptively simple beguiling rectangular shape but first news how <laughs> <laughs> was this time beat? I was not expecting news. Dance, 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 dance. Kubrick news. Boom, dip, boom, dip, boom, dip, boom, dip, um, Fashion label Gucci launched an ad campaign featuring meticulously recreated scenes from our favorite Stanley Kubrick. These tableaus place models right in the action with wardrobes giving homage to the genre. There's a dynamic that's hard to capture form that he has that's not a list of rules. It's not a set of instructions or a rigid guideline for always doing certain things, but there's a way that is infinite precision that follows through in all of the films, really from from the killing on, I think. I mean, the killing isn't, it isn't itself infinite precision, but the storyline is about clockwork, basically, and chess, and organizing sequences and patterns. So really, in that sense, the style was really the essence of the storytelling itself. And then after that, even films that are quote-unquote looser, at least in camera work or audio recording or even music and editing with Dr. Strangelove and Paths of Glory, that they are very specifically loose when they're loose. And, And more power to them for doing it for a you know, for a campaign, which not only keeps the memory alive, but in the epicenter of pop culture and fashion culture. Vibrant and ahead of the times now as much as ever. (laughs) My character is Lord Wendover, and I'm gentleman number one. I'm just gentleman four. 
yet. Who's not? I was holed up in the Hotel Chelsea most of the time during the early stages. I went through my short stories and dug out six which seemed appropriate to our ideas. And I sold them all to Stanley. And one by one, he threw them away and I bought them back. And they're still available. <laughs> and Stanley decided that the best way to produce the film was to write a novel, or at least the outline of a novel, first. Uh, we finally settled on one short story originally called The Sentinel, which is about the discovery of an artifact on the moon, which had been left there millions of years ago by some other civilization, and which I suggest was a kind of burglar alarm to trigger the news that we had escaped from our planetary cradle and were about to invade the universe. In reading the novel 2001 A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke, the monolith takes on more ominous and somewhat malicious sentience in the way that it influences the apes to not only adapt tools, but potentially commit the horrible deeds that followed shortly after them discovering um, the ability to use tools. So not only is it heightening the advancement of their technology, but it's also showing them that with that technology, they gain superiority over their other tribes. And Moonwatcher didn't realize what was really happening, but he was almost being manipulated by it. It wasn't just a kind of like omniscient source of technological power it was it was almost willing them to make the first steps to committing um, the act of war at first the apes completely disregard its presence it's there but no one really takes any notice to it shortly after there's a scene where they're hunted by prehistoric large cat i think it's either a like a jaguar saber tooth or, or some kind of predatory big cat and instead of fighting it in its territory they lured it into the cavern and this was the first time that they were starting to use um, for lack of a better term what would be called you know cunning or tactics this was the earliest form of not only utilizing tools but using the social structure to help achieve your goals oh, so yeah. what they did is they knew that this was lethal, um, if even if they hunted it in great numbers, they lured it back to their cave, and when it entered, they all lit their torches, blinding it, and then stabbed it several times. Wow. And they chased it out, and it fell over a cliff to its death. It reminds me of what we were talking about the other week with um, how uh, uh, Neanderthals would run and tire out their prey mm-hmm. <laughs> and use, you know, strategically <clears throat> run them around to wear them out. I want to run a, a few things by you to give you context. They didn't stab it, they beat it with clubs. Damn it. Oh, okay. okay. So it was clubs. Basically, exactly what I said, they lure the leopard into the cave, the early man beat it with clubs, and it is sent running off the side of a cliff where it falls to its death. And there's this quote from the novel, 
he was the master of the world, referring to Moonwatcher, mm-hmm. uh, after defeating his foe. He was the master of the world. He was not quite sure what to do next, but he would think of something. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the allusion to now that he knew pretty much he could conquer any living hurdle that might be in his way that leopard had been preying on their tribe and taking their people away often um you know we talked earlier about um how early man would come back and sometimes find their fellow people slaughtered in the caverns and that was kind of what initiated the the first early ritualistic burials Mm -hmm. so now that he knew he could defend his tribe his eyes were starting to turn to the other Australopithes on oh yeah the greener side of the the road there yeah. but Stanley was specifically interested in the possibility of life in outer space and what would happen if we encountered it or it encountered us so that was the basic theme he was interested in and of course that uses all sorts of problems particularly do you show what they look like you know all aliens in any space film they're from central casting obviously real aliens would look anything like human beings so what to do well we avoided that completely by never showing them a moment that they were really searching for in the development stages because there wasn't they needed a crux they needed an axle for the story to pivot on for revelation for enlightenment or a seed in the developmental process was sown and so when they were originally coming up with what the monolith was going to be we talked i know earlier about how it was at one point going to be potentially a glass pyramid but there was no way to really make that work on film right once they realized that they they were going to have contact with aliens via the sentinel the original story that this uh is based on at least the moon monolith which then carries over here in the beginning. When it, when it's discovered, then it sets off this frequency which drives everybody crazy inside their helmets when it goes off. I was wondering about that. It is basically supposed to communicate to the alien species that the alarm has been tripped and that humans have evolved to discover this. Yeah. Gotcha. Toward the end of the production, we started working on aliens and actual one-on-one encounters with aliens. Uh, Stanley's wife, Christiana, was working on sculpting aliens, painting aliens. I was working on slit scan versions of aliens, you know, kind of light beings. To avoid, you know, stereotypical alien and sci-fi movie cliches up to that time, we're talking 1964 and 5 when this is being developed, could they maybe be, according to Clark, quote, machines who regard organic life as a hideous disease. So for a couple of months they were talking about Perhaps the AI would be potentially um, contemptuous. If you had AI as your alien species, then you can avoid all the aliens and monster movies because as soon as you show an alien, we all know that not seeing it is almost, 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 almost always better than, than when you actually see the reveal. Yeah. And when, when a movie like this lingers so long to show you everything in all its wonder and majesty, then they they couldn't cheat that. So Clark was thinking, okay, well... Oh, and and possibly was this discussion of... They they talked about this for a couple of months. 
about the AI thing. So, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, is it possible that this was a seed for Hal at this yes. stage when they were originally talking about the aliens? Has you know? to be. Has to and be. then the, the contemptuous sort of or remote nature of how it's, you know, how the AI looks on humans probably bled over into wanting to do AI because that was a story that he uh, developed with Brian Aldous. Oh, I didn't know that. We will have to journey. Towards the moon. Are there many women in Roo City? As there are stars at night. And how will we find just one? We will ask Dr. No. There is nothing he doesn't. When they finally ditched that idea and, and were thinking about actual aliens, Clark was thinking that aliens were unimaginably different in both appearance and biology. Whereas Kubrick thought that they would probably be some form of a humanoid, bipedal, you know, familiar representation. Now, just saying, so far here, we've seen potentially uh, antagonistic AI villains, humanoid representations of alien demigods. I don't know if uh, that sounds like any big movie that anyone's heard of the last 10 years, but... Uh, your question depends on me understanding what you hope to achieve by coming here. What we hope to achieve was to meet our makers, to get answers. Why they, why they even made us in the first place. Why do you think your people made me? We made you because we could. Can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator? <laughs> Kubrick was also really into Giacometti at this time and I love the sculptures of Giacometti but if you're if you've ever seen any of his kind of dripping figures warped armatures sort of in these beautifully heartbreaking dynamic poses they're very very textural and kinetic so Arthur C. Clarke said to Kubrick well why don't you ask Carl Sagan maybe we can figure this out because he wanted to meet Carl Sagan. And of course, Kubrick, you know, at his position in uh, the industry at this point could make that happen. And turns out Sagan was an admirer of Clark. They all met for dinner. They discussed it. Carl Sagan pretty much agreed with Clark that it would probably be almost inconceivable what, what matter and what form uh, alien species might actually take. So in terms of the development of that story point of what that revelation was going to be, the idea was maybe at first that an alien hands down or somehow gives a knife to this Stone Age person, mm -hmm. which brings them into the next stage of evolution of their society, into like the Bronze Age or so. Or this would be like a crystal slab um, pulsing with lights and sound, like a giant extraterrestrial television set. <laughs> so we, we definitely got the pulsing sound. Yeah. That was cerebral. <laughs> <laughs> but then inquisitive tendrils, quote-unquote, would creep down the unused byways of his brain, being Moonwatcher. Mm. Somehow those vibrations, light and sound, would be having a literal 
impact on changing the brain. So a much more prosaic idea, but it's cool to visualize. Yeah. Spectacular light energy geometry show is what was noted, which of course I think probably transferred into the Stargate sequence. Yeah, absolutely. That is um, kaleidoscopic. Tubular. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. But that discovery of the moon monolith was going to be the climax of the story at this point. Wow. Um, so that was going to be basically you start out with the, the dawn of man, you, you have the space journey, and then you get to the moon and discover this thing, triggers the alarm, and that's the climax because that was the, the sentinel. And the dawn of man sequence was based on encounter in the dawn. And Encounter in the Dawn features pretty oh. much that storyline. I well, I read that the part. Original development. Well, the uh, yeah, yeah, Encounter in the Dawn is. So I guess that transferred over into the book as a chapter. Book, okay. yeah. The, there's a book chapter, and specifically, um, I think it's when Moonwatcher and One Ear, they were basically going to go make sure that um, the leopard was dead after they pushed it off the cliff. And they found it. Huh. Man, you know it's really crazy. the The story of the monolith kind of echoed into a couple of my favorite sci-fi video games. One of them being Mass Effect. Mm. Essentially, when a race becomes technologically advanced enough to travel, not necessarily like interstellar space, but like solar space, mm -hmm. every major system had essentially a relay. This huge you could even maybe call it a monolithic structure that would propel your ship faster than light oh, to the core yeah. of the galaxy to like quote unquote civilization and uh that's how humanity discovered this intergalactic council of aliens that mm -hmm. <laughs> you know some of them have existed for thousands of years and such and such but no that was really interesting and then the other one even earlier way earlier well maybe not way way earlier than mass effect xenosaga um, they have what's called the zohar mm. and it's found in lake turkana in kenya and mm. it was a source of infinite energy hmm. so not necessarily like a proto intelligent machine being hybrid but just a very powerful source maybe to Zero get point conductor into, of give yeah. them the capability of maybe interstellar traveler. Wesley, Wes, are you aware that you are behaving strangely? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting too how once they conceived of pushing the story beyond the revelation of the monolith, then you have room to actually explore other species and other dimensions yeah like open up the world because here to the moon was something that was very current to that time it wasn't what the working title implied which was journey beyond the stars they both thought that title mm -hmm. sucked but i think uh, it was important <laughs> just to have something to say but a, a yeah. space odyssey i mean yeah a space so odyssey beautiful. to the moon is an incredible thing but that would be 1968 a space odyssey to, to go beyond you know that's that's when things oh that's when it becomes the ultimate trip as they said i think actually yeah because when they did decide to to push it beyond into jupiter then 
course, that implies adding a third monolith, which, which there is. At this point, I think they were still in this idea of a crystal. I think tetrahedron shape was what we were going for. And I guess that's because it's a, an intricate, yet not too confusing to the eye, but interesting shape, you know? Yeah. Geometrically, I'm not sure if there would be any significance. Then it was going to be a crystal block, and then it was going to be a, like a cube, like a clear cube. But again, there your problem is, like, how do you translate that on film? How do you light the cube? How do you show that it's there with not showing that it's just the cube <laughs> right you, you can't light from inside you can't really have too many angles on it unless it's well especially you know. when we've had these scenes that are so intricately done i mean the first moon monolith scene where it's sunk into the ground at least a meter or so and there's all this mm-hmm. uh regolith kind of piled around the base of it and the crazy lighting from the rows of industrial lighting systems it's very intricate and interesting and to shoot like a floating cube in jupiter that would be contextually hard <laughs> hard to you know deliver in black space. <laughs> uh, i mean early star trek That's, but you know but. yeah i mean like if it was one of those ice cubes that gets a little eyelash in it or oh, something no. <laughs> so you at least have some point of reference you know like a little uh i think it'd be interesting to have it smashed into one of the small little moonlets that orbit. Oh, yeah, that would be. Because that way, you know, bits bits at Jupiter, it's just mm-hmm. embedded in one of its outer regions. It's still there. It's yeah. orbiting. You know, what's interesting is if you were to do that now, you would most definitely not want it totally clear. You would want texture on it. You would not want it clean. You'd want it scuffed up. Mm-hmm. You'd want there to be fingerprints on it, you know. <laughs> In order to, in order to sh- you Make know, it show grease <laughs> stain or something. Yeah, exactly. So that when you put the 3D glasses on, then it pops out at you. As a, <laughs> it doesn't disappear. Yeah. But that, of course, which would be antithetical to the whole <laughs> point of this perfect, you know, untouched thing. But how, how else, you know, how do you do it unless you just do it as a vector image? Which, of course, it was not, you know, possible then. Um, apparently, the in the novel, the explanation for the site at which the monolith is housed, you know, they use the guise of a pathogen outbreak to quarantine it and keep it secret. Mm-hmm. I believe the initial mission team that surveyed the site were archaeologists, so they oh. they were the first astroarchaeologist before that was even a, a thing. Oh yeah. And supposedly the monolith had been buried there for about 4 million years, which makes sense. Because if you think about the early development of man, mm-hmm. yeah, that just about lines up. So there's, uh, again, spiritual dimensions to these things. And humans have been building things to the stars forever. I mean, for as long as we've been around. You know, you can see in this early concept moon watcher with the reflection of this huge light show and the throbbing base of this extraterrestrial dubstep there is some kind of transference there there's something that happens for millions of people around the world billions of people around the world during religious ceremony and worship on a regular basis it's a ritual that has remained it's all an acknowledgement of the greater and the possibilities, whether we, you know, whether we have dogma 
and explanations for everything and or not things like what have you ever seen the monoliths in ethiopia you ever check those out are, what, like are you churches. talking about the standing stones they're they're yeah they're like yeah cut out of stone and they're these buildings <clears throat> yeah in the, in the ground yeah well so that's a prime example of where the where we have a, a, the monolith in real life an important religious icon it was in the zagwe dynasty this is like the seventh century or so uh their previous capital had been decimated so they had to move it to a place called rola in ethiopia which then ended up being named after uh, the monarch lolabella lolabella was a christian that monks had brought byzantine monks had brought christianity to ethiopia a couple of centuries earlier so Lolabella came along and supposedly made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during during the Crusades, uh, right before the Christians uh, lost the city. Uh, he was so overwhelmed by it that he vowed to, to create an African Jerusalem. Mm. It's a possibility that this is just a legend, and he may have just told it himself, or, or it became told later on. He may have also had a fever dream about it. But in, in any case, he continued to have fever dreams because he claimed, or once again, it... Uh, was claimed that the angels helped him build it and it seems likely that that a person would think that then just as people now see it and think that once again aliens were involved but incredibly enough this is perfect stone but it's basalt and so it, it's sculpable it's malleable it's 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 um it's porous but strong it's light and easier to carve but then again one of the problems is a thousand years later there's definitely some structural issues with it because it is there are there are 11 monolithic buildings that are cut into the ground we're sitting in saint mary's church yes how was it built well uh it was built starting from outside they formed the shape and then they start digging or let's say excavating downwards so they dug essentially a trench around the whole perimeter yes which left them with a giant cube of solid rock exactly and then they carved their doors and in they went in they went chipping inside largely in darkness artists sculpted many rooms with no room for error Archways, vaults, and columns imitate traditional construction, even though in solid rock, there's no need to hold up the ceiling. To that end, the World Monuments Fund is teaching conservation to dozens of Lalabella's priests and laymen in the hope that a host can protect the heavenly, perhaps for centuries to come. In one of our other corners of the world, one of the other monolithic structures that I've always been interested in is on the island of Rapa Nui, which Ooh, Rapa Nui. to most people will probably be known as uh, Easter Island. And yeah. the Moai, or the Easter Island heads, which are actually full bodies, the, the bodies are just sunken underneath earth at this point, those were also carved out of basalt. Mm. What I would love to see, if I could go back in time, there are written accounts where people watch the ceremony where they brought the Moai down from the mountain to put them mm -hmm. down to the coast. And they said they would literally walk and the earth would shake. Mm. Which means they were 
using some sort of, you know, lift one side of the couch, move it over to <laughs> the other side, <laughs> down from the quarry um, to the to the coast to stand them. Absolutely incredible. The the Rapa Nui people had a, a, a tragedy befall them. Um, just a, another uh, victim of colonialism and uh, you know mm. the the spread of uh, modern modern men unfortunately mm. but I, I would recommend everyone go check out a little bit of the history of Rapa Nui it is fascinating it involves monolithic structures and I think it would tie in nicely with what we're talking about today both places I would love to visit in fact I think there were over 20,000 people uh, that that were at the churches at Lollabella last year because mm. um, people come from hundreds of miles, thousands of miles even, you know, to make this pilgrimage. A lot of them on foot, like set out for three months, <clears throat> which is just so incredible. You know, such an ancient custom to, you know, we we think about it in in ancient texts when we're reading about people traveling on foot. You know, you gotta. Gotta go to Jerusalem. It's uh, it's gonna be three months or so of walking to get there, and three months back, and that's just still happening somewhere in the world. That's incredible. So many undiscovered things, and uh, an unfortunate side effect of our uh, current climate situation. We are constantly uncovering anywhere from like fifty-year-old to fifty-million-year-old undiscovered treasures as all this water is receding from our planet. Mm. Did you hear about the dinosaur footprints they found in Texas? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Completely. Um, I mean, it is terrible. We're in a bad drought. Everybody yeah. is experiencing um, hardships uh, across the world. And, but uh, the fact that we're able to swoop in and do some quick archaeological and paleontological these footprints are absolutely massive Uh, but they're also shoring up all kinds of ancient sites and unfortunately one of them I know was posted uh, from a region in China and I believe the only reason it was flooded in the first place is because the Chinese government decided to dam up the Yangtze River, but that's Ah. neither here nor there. (laughs) A wondrous river, our broad banks are swelling, home to a race of fish. Oh Yangtze, oh Yangtze, beautiful river, river full of fish. Yangtze Kayang, river of the eastern dream, teeming with carp and trout and perch and bream. And from Clavius Bay... I'm Once, and I'm Brad, signing off.